Hi, everybody. It's Gene Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations, and I know you voted. I heard there were some precincts in New Orleans where there was a 100% turnout. That is just amazing. And, and Latoya said it. She put out a, 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 news, a uh, news release today. She said, excuse me, Mayor Cantrell today said, um, okay, now you up in Baton Rouge, take us serious because we got the vote out for you. Yes. So that was that was kind of um, the uh, metaphor or the, the the statement for our discussion. I'm with um, Stephen Kennedy, who is a lawyer and an urban planner, and I have to say, you probably fairly characterized as an activist. Yeah, not a lawyer, just an urban planner and a real estate investor. Oh, okay. I don't know where I got the law part from. Uh, well, I do a lot of legal research, but I'm not a lawyer. Um, oh, that's interesting. Um, well, I've become a lawyer just from watching all the cable shows every night <laughs> on what's going on in Washington. And you get a, you're get you getting a legal education Yes. listening to that stuff, yes. although I really kind of had it, but neither here nor there. Anyway, um, Stephen's on with us tonight because what I wanted to remind you all is that after the vote, it's not over. You have to really stay in the game if you want uh, to be in the game and to get um, and to win and to get what you uh, think is important for your city, for your community done. Um, You can't just, um, you know, go back home and, and do your own thing. So, uh, and I, I, I'm kind of a, um, a lesson in that because uh, I care a lot about uh, cultural economy issues and making sure that creatives have an opportunity to make a living, to have a sustained career and all those good things. And um, I, I've worked on uh, promoting uh, platforms in culture uh, prior to elections. And then after they get in, I, I can't tell you that I've worked as hard to really go see the council people, um, uh, call and recall until you get to see somebody, you know, who's in office. Because I I know how busy those folks are. I've worked for mayors, and I know um, nobody really understands how hard government people work. They'd love to denigrate people in government. The truth is those folks work, they work all day and intensely, and they're working for what the mayor wants to see them do. They're working for what their office and their staff is supposed to do. They're working for all the calls they get from all of us for what we want them to do. (laughs) And then they have their own programs and ideas that they're bringing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be there. So, you know, it's it's not an easy thing. But um, you've had some success with this, and this is something that you believe in. So I really was hoping you would share with us, in a sense, some kind of recommendations, tips, and thoughts about how we kind of – you know, who was it? Was it Dutch who used to say keep the drive alive? You yeah. know, how, how do we keep the drive alive after the election? I think you, you touched on a valid point that um, sometimes as um, voters, we just think that once we elect people, we just let them go on to be and not really not realizing that we still have to be we all have to have become activists of sorts um, and just expressing about those concerns or those issues and things about how we can provide solutions um, in a community. So I think that that's the hard part. Like, voting to me is the easy part. You know, you're just going into a booth and you're just voting for a candidate or you're voting on an issue. The hard part is about the activism and doing the follow-up and making sure that if a candidate uh, say that they were going to be big on this issue, then, you know, it's about 
having accountability and also helping them find solutions. I think to, also to your point, elected officials, they're, they're individuals, they're human beings. And so they're not perfect and they're going to never, ever be perfect. But they're in a leadership position. So I think it's about community members and activists just constantly um, going and approaching elected officials and saying, hey, I just wanted to remind you again of these issues and how we can go about addressing them and trying to work together to find solutions um, to those problems. Yeah, and, and, I, and I think there's a little bit of a tendency, and it has something to do with, I read somewhere, sometime, uh, somewhere that um, people have a tendency to remember negative stuff better than positive stuff. We, we think about negative stuff more than we think about positive stuff. And it sounds like a terrible thing, but it really, probably kind of comes from originally from survival instincts. You know, we've got to be aware of the dangers and deal with them. Otherwise, especially if you're out in the wild when you were when we didn't have, you know, electricity, homes, cars, all those wonderful things. Yeah. We had to fend for ourselves. So yes. there's a little bit of that. But so there's a tendency for people to fight against stuff instead of for stuff. Yes. And, and, and all the time when I work with communities, I'm always saying, what is it you want as opposed to what you don't want? Definitely, definitely. And I, I can agree. So um, I give a, I'm also a member of the Collaborative, uh, which is an organization of small minority and women-owned businesses. So uh, we advocate on the behalf of, you know, small businesses, you know, in the New Orleans region. And, and I think about, like, just a disparity study. Um, and to your point is that, you know, we went to when Mitch was in office, I think, they had all these budget meetings in the community. So we just went every single meeting and we talked about the need for a disparity study. Um, and eventually that was uh, put into the budget by the former council. And, and then now we, you know, so now we, you know, produced a report. Well, we didn't produce a report. The city paid for a report that was produced that uh, showed us the problems that we have in our community um, for just the lack of economic opportunity for minority and women-owned businesses. So you've just made three points already in your sort of recommendations. Uh, so number one, um, I guess know what you want. Yes. Right. Have your program. Yes. Okay. Uh, number two is organize. Yes. Because to get people to come out to meeting after meeting after meeting, they've got to be organized mm -hmm. because nobody wants to go to meetings over and over again. Right. And organizing is, is hard. Um, and I didn't realize, I'm a younger man, so I wasn't alive during the civil rights movement, um, even though I, I, I know the stories um, extensively. But, you know, just seeing the power of organizing and, and the results that you get from organizing, because as one individual, you just can be one voice. But when you have a collective group of individuals who are saying the same thing over and over and over again, it makes it easier because, you know, we individuals, we get tired. Um, and so when you have other folks who are able to pick up the ball um, and continue moving it up the field, I think that that's important. So organizing is a critical, critical um, aspect to getting stuff done. So, um, uh, and also you, you refer to the civil rights movement, and, and so I think another factor that plays into this is that when things are really bad, the organizing is a little easier than when they are bad but not so egregious, right? So when um, the present man occupying the White House, I have a hard time calling him president, um, came in, um, there was a huge human cry and a resistance movement kind of came out of that. Um, if, if he had been sort of less nasty, just plain called nasty, I don't think that as much 
organizing would have happened. And so I think that's kind of another point that you may have something you really want to see happen, that it isn't exactly like, you know, getting the right to shop on Canal Street, but it is getting the right to be competitive in getting contracts. So that doesn't sound as as fundamental as being able to use a water fountain or go to Canal Street, but it's 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 real important for people to have the same kind of business opportunities that the other guy has. Definitely, I think I think when when folks see a problem, I think there becomes a sense of urgency when you know like a problem has been persistent for generations or decades. Um, you know, and then I think that that's when folks feel like you know what this is a real true problem, um, and I think that leads to the better organizing because once you can formulate the messaging and understand, okay, what's the problem? Then now you can get everybody in line because organizing, they, they say, I, th- I think the term they use is like herding cats mm-hmm. <laughs> of sort because, you know, when you're organizing in, in any fashion for any particular reason, you're dealing with human beings. And human beings got different ideologies. They got different emotions. They think about things differently. And so really trying to uh, try to, find an organized message as well um, in order to so nothing get diluted or tainted um, and that the real impact that, you know, folks are trying to achieve, whatever the organizing goal is, um, to try to achieve, I think, just having that organizing, uh, a straightforward message that's centered on, on, on a particular issue, I think, you know, it leads to better results and it, you know, it don't let, it don't make people feel overwhelmed of sort if you're trying to tackle everything. I think I think that's another very uh, important point, message, having a clear, simple message. So a, a lot of time when you talk about message, you always hark back to um, James Carville in, in Clinton's race said, it's the economy, stupid. And this is actually something that I preach because people want to talk about crime, and I always say, I, I don't do – any stories on this show about crime, because crime to me is a symptom. It's a symptom of lack of education, business opportunity, financing, um, poverty in a city. And so if you don't deal with primarily education, then you can't do anything. So that's my message. That's one of my messages, and that's a straightforward message. But here's what I want to ask you. So my message is about how important our creatives are in the community, right? Very important. And how... It is our creativity and our culture, both the legacy, the past culture that we keep alive. You know, I always say the past isn't the past in New Orleans, but also all the innovative things that are being done by um, younger and just just people who are trying to do something new. Um, So uh, it's really important that we support that because that's really part of our economic future. That message I just said, that sounds real clear to me. Yeah. I have not been as effective with that message as I thought I would be 10 years ago when we formed the Creative Alliance of New Orleans. I've, I find myself trying to say that to business people, and I think I see their eyes glaze over because mm-hmm. they just don't see the arts as economic right. development. Right, but it is because if you listen to a lot of our elected officials nowadays, they talk about the importance. I know like – Mary Cantrell usually always talk about the people and, and how it's important about the culture barriers. And I just give an example. Uh, yesterday they had, I think, what today is, Tuesday? I think that was Sunday. Um, they had a second line group called the Nine Times or something. I didn't go to the second line, but I watched it on social media. And you just <coughs> see the huge, huge crowds 
Um, and just think about the impact that they have for the businesses that the second line pass up that might be selling water or soda or sandwiches. And so the culture bearers are super important. So not only just the musicians, but also um, the, Indi- the Mardi Gras Indians and all those other different uh, individuals who are in that culture economy. That makes New Orleans great because people come here for the culture and the food. You know, the builders and stuff all like I think that is uh, kind of secondary, but I think people... It's secondary until they get here. Yes. And then I, I do think that our uh, environment, our architecture, our landscape, and just kind of the ambiance, and also I was thinking about trying to figure out a new way to talk about this because I, I, I'm sort of stale with my message a little bit, and I was thinking, you know, it, it only takes getting into a cab at the airport to start to feel what it's like to be in New Orleans because the drivers are going to be welcoming. And what do people always say about New Orleans? I always feel so welcomed here. It feels warm. And people, now, there's there's a dark side to the city, too, in terms of, you know, we're more complicated than that. But nonetheless, we really are welcoming people. Um, so, but at the same time, we're not, the creators are not getting the support that they should. And it's a legacy, too, that as much as the culture is our legacy, this not feeding that culture is a legacy that we have to combat. Yeah, I think, too, um, I think, you know, having a conservative, you know, organizing effort. I know they have groups like, I think, MACNO, I think it's called. Um, MACNO is dealing with uh, music and primarily with intellectual property rights, which are critical Critical, for musicians. And so I think think they have, like, music organizations. I I don't think they have. Oh, also, they're dealing with music in the streets. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that's why I say I'm not really, I'm I'm not an artist or anything like that. So... But I, I think that I, I haven't seen like a concerted effort of all, even though, you know, you might have somebody that's focusing on musicians. You might have somebody that's focusing on uh, Mardi Gras interviews. You might have a group that's focusing on this uh, and all those other different cultural aspects. But I haven't saw like a, a real coalition that has been built. And that's just from my aspect. Um, and I think that. No, you're absolutely right. And that's what I'm trying to do. M- yeah. Myself and other people that I'm involved with is trying to make that coalition happen. Because that goes back to what you said before, organize. Yes. Getting all your folks to go to those meetings. Tell me about how you do that. Um, I guess. A lot of phone work, right? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I tell people, so over the last nine years, I probably maybe missed five or six council meetings. Uh even if really? I don't, even if I don't stay the whole entire meeting, I, I go maybe sit for thirty minutes, an hour or two. It just depends. I on. think that's where I might have seen you once because I was working with the Holy Cross community to try to avoid those high rises from going up, and I think I vaguely remember seeing you at that meeting. Yeah. So yeah, because pe- I knew when I saw your picture, you were familiar. Yeah. So I, I, I go because I think that. Uh, I think to your point that you alluded earlier, we have to be engaged citizens, meaning that we have to actually know what is going on. And the only way, you know, that we know what's going on is either we at the meetings or we also watch them. You can watch them online because that's what I do, too. I watch even if I can't stay the whole entire meeting, then I go on my computer um, and just rewatch the whole entire meeting so I can understand what's going on and how what are the discussions um, and things of that nature. So I think we got to inform ourselves, you know, more um, in order to be able to be uh, good stewards in order to push uh, for issues that, we, you know, we have of concerns. Now, how do you balance that with making a living? 
<laughs> what well, do you do to make a living? So I'm a real estate developer, and urban planner. So I okay. work for myself. Um, and so it, it is difficult when you work for yourself because one of the things that uh, folks say, uh, you eat what you kill. Uh, so if you're not catching, you're not catching no no fish, then you're not eating. So it constantly make you know make me be on guard in order to constantly you know be focusing on my business and working for yourself. You can work all times of the day. So sometimes I just get up out of my sleep. Uh, maybe it's two o'clock in the morning if I can't sleep and just start working. Um, so that's the I think that's the kind of double-edged sword of working for yourself. You can work on your own time, but also you have to produce because you know maybe just yourself or if you have other individuals that are working for you. So you got to always stay on top of it because it's like being in college. You know, when you go to college, nobody not telling you, hey, you got to wake up to go to class today or you got to get this paper in on time. That's your own responsibility, and so that's. The life I live as a entrepreneur, just always going at it and always working, I feel like. Are you from New Orleans? I am, born what and raised. What part of the city? I was born and raised in the St. Bernard Housing uh, Projects. Downtown? Yes, not too far away from here. Below Canal? Yes, yes, ma'am. <laughs> I'm a downtown girl, too. Yes, ma'am. When my friends want me to go to a restaurant uptown, I say, well... <laughs> I float all over the city, though, you know, yeah, so no, I, I, love, I love this city. Um, I love New Orleans, so Why? I... I, I I just have always had an affection, you know, for New Orleans, you know, being born and raised here. And I feel like New Orleans was this kind of like a double-edged sword, to use that word again, because, you know, you have, you know, as a child growing up here, you see some of the things that, you know, you like, wow, uh, I wish I could have had lived in a better environment because, you know, my aunt used to take us. Um, on Bancroft Street, you know, used to see the big old houses like, wow, I want to live in here in one of these houses one day. And I think that that was always the good thing about, like, New Orleans, you know, being able to walk to Canal Street for Mardi Gras um, or just, you know, mm. going all over, the, uh, going over across the city, you know, where you go catch a second line in another part of the city. You know, I think all those things are, are beautiful to me about New Orleans. Um, you know, it's not a perfect city, but to me it's a great city, um, you know, comparison to some of the other places that I lived in. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me more about the collaborative. Okay. Yeah, so the collaborative been started maybe roughly about six years ago. Um, and so the whole premise of the collaborative being started was uh, folks just – you know, came together and just said, well, we know we have a problem in the city of New Orleans um, in regards to providing economic opportunities um, across the city. So not only in government, but also in the private sector. And so the collaborative was started basically as a policy um, group, mostly like a think tank of sort. And so we are actually policy driven. Um, and so the policy kind of lead to a little bit more to the activism side, but we also we mainly focus on creating solutions to problems that we know exist. And I spoke about earlier about us, you know, asking the previous mayor and the previous council about funding in the disparity study um, to really try to have uh, a. And, and, and you have to uh, uh, tell folks a little bit more about that. I, I know about it just because gotcha. I know Geneva, gotcha. who works on it also. Yes, but, ma'am. Uh, tell me uh, uh, about the um, the. Um, the problem and, and and exactly how you were looking to solve it and and the disparity uh, a project came out after years of us trying to get DBE yes. um, uh, work uh, assigned more to people who in the DBE DBE by the way for anybody who doesn't know I can't imagine but um, it, it's 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 disadvantaged business enterprises and so it's people who are female or 
Uh, they can be African American. They can be Hispanic woman. Any yeah, it's anything race and that makes neutral. it harder for them to get. Yes. Yeah. If you have to be social and economically challenged in order to be certified as a disadvantaged business enterprise. So it's race and gender neutral. Oh, uh, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason. So in other words, if you were if you were raised with very little money and you still have very little money. Yes. You're eligible. Yes. Yeah. Yes. That's right. And so the reason why disparity studies are done because of the Crozen decision that made it all, all the way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and what happened in that Crozen decision was the city of um, Virginia, I think it was, um, uh, Richmond, they basically set aside a contract um, for a minority. Um, I think it was a plumbing contract or something in, in, in a penal institution. And uh, another guy, you know, felt upset that he couldn't, you know, compete for it. So an association wound up suing and it, and it wound up making it all the way to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court basically said that the only way that you can have a set-aside program if you show that an actual disparity exists. And so you have to do a disparity study in order to have an actual set-aside program. The challenge that we found here in Louisiana is that, you know, we did the disparity study and thinking like, oh, it's going to be great. It's going to allow us to you know, work with the city to create a set-aside program, but the Louisiana Constitution doesn't allow, the, the Louisiana Constitution prohibited because in 1974, um, when they did the Constitutional Convention, um, they I think it's under Article 1, Section 3, that basically said that, you know, the state of Louisiana can't um, discriminate against anybody based on race or gender. So Louisiana, unfortunately, um, we can't, from what we've been told, uh, we can't do a set-aside um, program based on the current uh, Louisiana Constitution. So, problem solution. So I think I think the administration, um, you know, American Trail administration is working. Um, I guess along with the council to try to come up with you know solution based on the parameters of what the law allows. And I think that that's what you know we in constant discussion you know, and working along with them in order to try to have a program that can be legal, legally defensible. Um, because a lot of these programs, unfortunately, get challenged by, you know, some of these organizations or associations who don't feel like, you know, government should be setting aside um, any procurement opportunity. But one of the biggest things that, you know, we found uh, by reviewing the disparity study is that government has been performing okay, the problem that we found is that the private sector is the biggest problem, um, you know, uh, with the lack of procurement opportunities in the private sector because government can give out all the contracts that they want, you know, and that's only a fine because government, we always hear government have a finite amount of dollars. The private sector roughly spends about $50 billion a year. That's the metro statistical area, $50 billion. In, in, in this region? In, in this region, in procuring, procuring goods. So it doesn't matter. It's landscaping services, construction services, legal services, architecture services, public relation, all these different factors, you know, that come in um, into play when we're thinking about procurement opportunities. So if even if it's about buying light bulbs, you know, and so... Mm -hmm. We've been trying to focus on trying to get the private sector to start opening up procurement opportunities. Um, and I know that like, the New Orleans Business Alliance is working. They created something they call a procurement council um, and still trying to push that forward. But we, we still need to, you know, hopefully have a lot of more private sector, 
you know, companies saying, hey, these are procurement opportunities and open them up. Because actually, I think it would be good for them because they might actually uh, find some savings, uh, you know, if they open up procurement opportunities for all to compete. Uh, uh, and also, I think increasingly the private sector is recognizing that people want to see businesses um, attend to social issues. And so a lot of, especially the big national corporations, are beginning to say, okay, well, we're good guys too, you know, we're for this and we're for that, yeah. as a way of saying uh, we're not here just to make money. Yes, and, and actually I'm glad you, you you make me think of something. I don't know if a lot of your audience or you ever heard of a guy named Michael Porter. He's a Harvard business professor. Um, he, he came up with this concept called shared value. And I guess just to kind of give a short synopsis of it, he, he just kind of gave an example like Coca-Cola, right? If Coca-Cola was maybe investing into the community and that community, you know, the small businesses in the community, you might be a grocery store, for instance. If your company, your grocery store is growing, then you might have to buy more Coke products, right? So actually, is he, he, he just basically giving private corporation and not let, letting them think about from a philanthropic perspective. He getting them to think about, hey, look at the economic benefits, I think, that you alluded to earlier. So looking at it from a social aspect about diversity, but also looking at it aspects of economic. Money is green at the end of the day, and the more you spread opportunities, the more your companies grow. Because um, diversity is a great thing um, to me. I feel like diversity is a great thing um, for the economy um, in order to move it forward. I, I I think that's a I think that's a good kind of wraps up the whole notion of what you're talking about. Um, I, I got another guest or two to come on, so I want you to tell me: is there any kind of thought that you had about how to organize after the election that I didn't touch on that that you were thinking about telling me about? Um, I think organizing at the election um, is is really about getting um, a coalition of folks who are like minded in order to come up with an, an agenda and then being able to carry out that that agenda with, you know, the like-minded parties have. And I think it's just really about the follow-up um, in order to show elected officials, hey, you know, folks are not trying to be a problem for you. Folks are actually trying to help you create a solution to a problem that we know all exists and that impacts all of us. So I think that that's what I would um, mostly emphasize. Yeah, emphasize. Keep it on, keep it on. Yes, yes, keep <laughs> on, keeping on. And, and I think that that's just in my nature. I'm, I'm you know, people, sometimes I could be aggravated and I bother the heck out of people. Or I, I'm, a, I'm a super persistent guy because I feel like persistency wins the day. Yeah, you know, you got to be persistent in order for you to get stuff done. So right. staying persistent, I think, is the most important I, piece. I, I, I feel it. I, can, I feel the. I feel the persistence. I know it's there. Yes, ma'am. I appreciate so much you coming in. Listen, you keep me in mind, and when you're on one of your initiatives and you really want to get the word out, please come see me again. Thank you for having me on, Ms. Thank Jean. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Um, so that was kind of the, you know, the hard-hitting part of our show, you might say, although uh, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't so hard. It was uh, beautiful. But um, now I'm going to bring on um, a wonderful artist who um, – this this is the kind of artist you call her and you say, hey, we're going to do this. And she'll say, oh, sure, I'm in. <laughs> so I, we called, uh, I think it was uh, Carrie Moorhead, who works with me, who first called you. She said, you know, Christina Larson. I said, okay, check it out. Uh, she showed me some of your work. And I said, yeah. So we have a show 
opening Saturday um, at what we call Crevasse 22 Riverhouse. And that's a name that I have to think hard about whether I want to stay with that forever because I always have to explain it. But um, so it's 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 a site that was right next to where there was a huge crevasse, a natural breach in the Mississippi River levee that flooded St. Bernard. And so what happened is that right at the by the levee, um, it created like a little lake where there once was a bayou. So it just became this really beautiful site. And then this guy Sidney Torres III. Um, bought that property. He lost his house, actually, after Katrina and lived in a trailer for a good long time until he could rebuild his house. And um, right next to it was this property. And one day we ran into each other and he said, you know, I've been thinking about doing something with the arts here. What do you think? And he invites me out to look at it. And I say, oh, yeah. I said, let's do a little pop-up. Let's do a pop-up sculpture show on these grounds for Prospect um, 2. Well, um we added a little food to the agenda, and that always helps. And, and we started getting a lot of people out there, and, and we're still going five years later. So then we um, took over this house that was um, abandoned by the owners. Not abandoned, but the, they didn't come back after the storm. And um, within, I don't know, not even two months, he had gotten the architect, um, uh, John Crescia, and a crew of his um, – led by Victor, uh, who um, put did the work, and, and they had created this beautiful little museum in, in the, at this gorgeous site. It's only 25 minutes down from the French Quarter, I keep telling people, because people tend to think, oh, all the way down to St. Bernard. Well, all the way down to St. Bernard is literally only 25 minutes. And, and people say, oh, you have to go over a bridge. And I always say, Big deal. When you're in New York, where I'm from, you have to go over bridges every 15 minutes. The whole city is nothing but bridges because it's basically a little bunch of islands next to each other, really. So I said, you can make it. And this Saturday, we're opening a show called Earthworks. And sometimes Earthworks means big installations out on the landscape. But in our case, what it refers to is um, sculptures and art made out of ceramics. And that is what Christina Larson, who's with me today, does. That's what she makes. And my first question to you is why? Well, I haven't always worked in clay. I actually started out working as a stone carver um, while in my undergraduate program. Oh, my God. And that's, that's tough stuff. Oh, it was great. It was lots of fun. Um, but, you know, having the facilities to do stone carving isn't always accessible. And so I really enjoyed working with stone. But, you know, with that, it was all about form, as is my work now. Um, so, you know, just moving from place to place, I found clay to be something that was really easily accessible. And, um, you know, I just I love working with my hands. And, you know, every move that I make, the clay moves with me. Um, I, I always had an issue with welding or... Uh, bronze casting or those types of art forms because you can't touch your object. You can't really, you know, I felt so separated. Whereas with clay, yeah. you know, it's it's you and gravity. You know, you can control it as much as you want and then gravity's going to, you know, do its thing. So actually what you're referring to, and I watched your hand motions, and I know you're talking about what happens when you put clay on a wheel, which is, is, is that... That and hand building. And um, hand building. You know, with hand building, you also have to. It's a balance. It's a balance because you're you're dealing with the weight of the clay. You're dealing with the 
the water in the clay. So if you're building too quickly, it's going to be too heavy and it's going to fall on itself. Whereas, you know, you're really trying to balance that out. But then I really like allowing gravity to kind of move it, but not so much that it cracks and falls over. So, you know, it's kind of this dance between my control with my hands and allowing gravity to do its thing. So you have to be kind of really sensitive. You have to you have to be like a clay whisperer. You do, yeah. <laughs> That's good. And, and sort of, you know, just as you go and really feel what's happening yeah. and be sensitive to it and, and uh, as you say, work with it and where it wants to go but where you also want it to go. Yeah, I mean, you know, and you just you learn that over the time, you know, and certain clay bodies are different, but... You know, it, as you work more and more with a certain clay body, you you know how it reacts. You know its drying time and, it, and the weight it can take. And yeah, but it is a sensitivity. So one of the things that uh, that you make is very different from what people typically think of. They probably think mainly of like vases that they put flowers in. Um, but you make these abstract objects that kind of, in a way, suggest but do not look like they're not representative but they have the feeling of flight and you put them um up on a wall instead of on a table so how did you how did you arrive at doing that kind of work you know i love happy accidents and um i actually created what i call my negative space sculptures so it was basically a ribbon of of clay like slab rolled clay that was supposed to be one solid piece, but through the process of, you know, drying and firing and all of that, it had uh, come out of the kiln broken into pieces. <laughs> but I really liked the pieces. I thought they were really interesting, you know, fragments. And so I decided just to put them up on my wall and, you know, kind of make this, you know, fragmented wall sculpture. Um, you know, I, I posted it on social media and... Um, I had a, a friend who had a client who was looking for interesting wall pieces. And so, um, you know, from there I just started doing more and more of them. And, you know, I just, I really enjoy that kind of, you know, instead of keeping the sculpture all as one, it's a lot more freeing. And, you know, each time you install it, it's going to be a little different. Um, and I like that. I like, um, you know, it's all about the moment and, you know, you're, you're placing them where you feel it's right each time. So this is something that's been going on for a while now that you've been doing? Yeah, I mean, well, a few months. I mean, it's not, Oh, you know, it's relatively new. Yeah, so. I've, I've been doing a lot of sort of solid, like, cloud forms. I actually have a, a cloud installation up at the Ogden Museum right now. It's in the Louisiana Contemporary Show. And, you know, with that piece, it is three different solid forms that are mounted on the wall with different colored lights behind them illuminating. And so, you know, projects like that I started probably two years ago, and then this fragments thing is kind of a little bit newer. So so that's another thing you like to work with is light. Right. So tell me about that, because I, I, I'm not familiar with people working in clay also introducing the ingredient of light. Well, How did know, that happen? Well, you know, I grew up in, in the 80s, so, you know, it was all about neon colors, and um, I love neon lights. I just always have. And... You know, I would love to be a neon artist, but there again, that's not being able to touch and hold your object. And, you know, I, would, I wouldn't feel like the products are actually mine, even though I would design them. But this is my way of, you know, being a part of 
the creation of my work and then incorporating light into them. Like I have a, a table in the Crevasse 22 show where it is a hand-built table base. It's called Billow. And so it looks like almost like clouds or smoke billowing up, and it's pure white. It has a hot pink light inside of it, and the tabletop is frosted, so it just sort of illuminates. You know, and so I just feel like it gives a different atmosphere. It just, you know, it changes the overall feeling. And it, it kind of lifts it um, beyond the object itself. Right. No, it, it becomes an experience. Yeah. Um, I'm, I haven't seen it yet, of course, because you just installed yesterday right. and I wasn't out there, so yeah. I'm, I'm excited to see it. Um, so long term, tell me um, how you see your work developing and, um, you know, uh, what's what's your kind of goal as an artist? Well, I mean, I have to make art. You know, I, I do. I, I'm the director of Octavia Art Gallery, so, you know, I do that during the day and I sculpt at night. And we're going and to get to that, too, because balancing day and night jobs as an artist is one of the most difficult things in the world. Yeah, but when you're a maker and a doer, it's it's really fulfilling. I mean, yes, it can be a little much sometimes, but but I love it. And, you know, I love the business side behind art and I love the creation side of art. Um, but, um, long term, I mean, I think right now with, with my art, um, I love just kind of the play of blending the lines, you know, blending the lines between art, craft, and design. And, you know, when I started, when I was in art school, it was all about sculpture and it was all about, um, you know, making one solid object. And I just, I like the freedom of, you know, today I feel like, you know, creating a table and tomorrow I feel like making jewelry and, you know, just kind of playing between art, craft and, and design when, you know, growing up, I always felt like I had to keep them in these separate categories and I had to be one thing or the other. Whereas I really see it all as one thing, you know, just different forms of it. This is one of the things that I, I try to tell young people who are thinking about working in creative fields, that um, it, it's important to really free yourself to think across parameters and lines because I, I, I can't, most artists I know have gone through different phases in their lives and made different kinds of things. My sister studied <clears throat> ceramics at Alfred. Wonderful. She, and then she comes out. She goes to Rutgers. She studies, you know, gets her um, her um, BS and um, uh, not her her bachelor, but her master's. Mm -hmm. And um, then she starts teaching. Um, and then she started painting, and she really basically became a painter. She still dabbles every once in a while in ceramics, but she became a major painter, a beautiful painter. We should talk about it sometime. Great. And. Um, <clears throat> So, and then she's an arts administrator, so she runs uh, something called the Bronx River Arts Center in the Bronx, which is, you know, up on Pelham, uh, up near the um, the uh, zoo up there in the Botanical Gardens. Um, so she, she's crossed those lines. She crosses the lines that you're describing also. But working in a, working at, for her, she's been consumed by running that center. So when I try to get her to give me art to show, I have to really, really work at it because I think she's somehow embarrassed that she hasn't made, uh, spent more of her life um, making art. And so uh, she, she really is, is somehow reluctant 
to show. But um, she's a beautiful painter. And uh, but but you can that day job can be consuming. I was just talking with a guy recently. I'm I'm not going to remember his name, but he was um, a, a preparator at the Contemporary Arts Center. And he had to leave the job in order to make work, in order to do art, because he ju- he couldn't do that balance. So, how h- how do you manage to achieve that balance when so many people have a heart? Jazz, jazz is, is a music <laughs> producer, and he and he is in here doing this engineering. And I'll bet this is a challenge for him to be able to do his art. I mean, it, it's a challenge for all artists, I think. Time management, you know, <laughs> it's all about. Just, you know, it is balance. I'm a Libra, so my life is about balance. And, um, you know, when it's balanced, it just feels so good. And, you know, of course, like uh, with the gallery, we have all of these exciting projects. We work with hospitals. We just installed a wonderful piece in the World Trade Center a few weeks ago. Um, You know, so we're kind of back and forth. The World Trade Center here? Um, In New York City. In New York? Yes. What, in which building? In Seven World Trade. Which one is Seven. (laughs) <laughs> it's one of them. <laughs> okay. I, I used to work right around the block. I lived across the street from the World Trade Center when I was working in New York oh, wow. in the 90s, but um, I don't remember which. I think the numbers have changed anyway. Well, they have but a, good for you. Yeah, they have a great art collection. It, it's actually by Regina Scully, so you know we, oh, were, yeah. we were thrilled to be able to place her work there. That's great. Um, yeah, so you know, it's we have all these great projects going on. And it's really, it motivates me a lot. I'm really so happy to be a part of all of that. Um, but also it, you know, it motivates me to make my own work and to stay busy and to, you know, I'm inspired by everything I see all the time and to be able to really go back into my studio and, you know, kind of make sense of everything and, you know, use the forms that I love and incorporate different things into them and so my husband's uh, that kind of an artist too because he incorporates the things that he deals with in urban planning in his art. So he works with the house forms and he he works with landscape and he works with all kinds of things that have to do with the environment and so on. So he he does that balance, but I can see how tortured even he is <laughs> in terms of not being able to put more time into making his art. But yeah. so so I, give me a day in the life of Christina. I want to hear how you achieve that balance. Mm-hmm. Well, um, often when I wake up, I will go outside, and um, I've been doing this this line of jewelry recently, and so I will go outside and, and paint. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll do a little painting, and then I'll just get ready for work and go to work. You know, at the gallery, you know, it's seeing clients, it's, you know, working with projects over the phone or via, you know, email, um, you know, all the daily things that we do on a normal day. And then, you know, after work, I'll come home and I'll just be dabbling, you know, in my home studio with whatever it is that needs to be finished or, um, you know, things call to you. You just, you know what, what the priorities are. Um, and then every Monday, I'm going out to Harahan, where a friend of mine has a, a great studio with kilns and wheels and you know big slab rollers and you know she has she has the big things all the equipment you need to work on your ceramics monday is really my day of doing the firing and all of that when i have you know the day off and lots of time so the answer i'm hearing in a way is that you basically just um never stop well you know i I need downtime, and, you know, we make sure to take vacations and, uh, you know, enjoy time with friends and family and and the cat, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I commend you on being able to um, 
really do keep that balance going because I, I just know that um, it sounds natural for you, but it is hard. It really is hard. I'm sure you know other artists who have had a hard time trying to achieve that balance. So um, I think maybe you need to write a book about how you do it <laughs> for for the uh, sake of uh, the people who, um, who who have a harder time with it. So I'm looking forward to seeing your entire show because you have a whole gallery room to yourself with your work. And, um, and we have uh, some other really terrific artists. We've got Kevin O'Keefe, whose work I'm crazy about. It's very, it's much more rugged. Um, and and um, uh, powerful, sort of brutalist um, ceramics, you might say. And then um, Sandra Pulitzer has got a new thing that she's doing where she's working with strips of porcelain and making basket-like forms, and I kind of love that. Um, and then um, I actually put uh, something – People may criticize me for this, but I find it irresistible. So I'm, I, I often am integrating some of my husband's work. But he did a series of assemblages once with um, kind of knickknacks that I'm kind of crazy about. And, um, you know, they sit in my living room. So um, getting them out of there is Exciting. not a bad thing. <laughs> and um, and they kind of go well with Susan um, Bergman's uh, work, which is kind of based off um, a kind of uh, exaggeration of figurines from another period. And so um, I think it's a fun show. What an interesting mix. I'm trying to think if I've missed anybody. who. Oh, Mapo Kennard. So Mapo's work I've been showing uh, over the years. And so I I always come back to her because one of my absolute favorite pieces, which is a vessel, but it's not really, you know, you can use it for flowers and stuff. But on its own, it looks like something that came out of the Venetian era in some way. It's really beautiful. So... So, and let me just add something to that because I'm about to, is my next guest, okay, so we're going to talk now about how we're celebrating our opening, which is this Saturday from 10 to 4, which is with one big giant pie sale. Now, I don't know about anybody else in the world, but I'm a big pie freak, so I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you so much, Christina, for being in the show and for being with us today. Thank you so, Thank f- you for so much for having me. And um, I'm so excited about the exhibition. I'll see you on Saturday. Thank you. And now I'm going to turn to, oh, my good friend Alton um, Osborne, who unfortunately, um, uh, Alton, you got the you got the flu, baby. I got something. I don't want to call it the flu. I'm going to, it, it, I will not name it. It will not be called the flu. But um, you know, I'm uh, just a little bit under the weather. Let's go with that. Let's let's. I hope you're taking energy C. Are you taking energy C? I, I'm working with anything I can get my hands on at this point. Well, it's well, been a couple of days now, but um, you know, I, I hope to be up and running by the weekend. Well, Doctor John, I mean Doctor Jean, rather, recommends Energy C because it gives you a thousand milligrams of vitamin C, which I'm a big believer in ever since the '60s. And I used to get colds and earaches and sore throats, and um, uh, somebody persuaded me to start taking a thousand milligrams of vitamin C a day. From the minute you start getting a scratchy throat or your drippy nose, and I'm um, uh, staying with it. So it may not often, if you do it early enough, you can kill the cold altogether. But sometimes you can't kill it, but you can reduce the symptoms. But then Energy C has all these other vitamins that boosts the impact of the C. So I'm a, a strong believer. You put it in a cup of hot tea, big cup of hot tea, swallow it down, and and do that for a few days. Um, and I promise you, you're going to feel better. Well, I hope to be on the tail end of it. I guess the hot toddy's uh, kind of working also, but uh, we'll, we'll see how that how that gets me through. We're, uh, we're, we're almost there. 
All right. Well, just remember that Dr. Jean said energy safe. Okay. Anyway, yes, uh, yes, yes. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, Alton is, uh, co-owner with, um, Chaya Conrad of, um, the Bywater Bakery, uh, on Dauphine Street down in the Bywater, which is, um, kind of one of the new hot, um, I, I, coffee shop is so limiting a word because you serve so many great sandwiches and the best croissants in town and, um, oh, right. really bagels, great bagels cakes. On Wednesdays. Uh, bagels, bagels on open. Wednesdays and, um, and, uh, so, you know, it's, it's breakfast and lunch, music, the whole thing. But, um, I happen to be this very serious pie freak. I always have been. I think it's a Yankee in me or something, you know, apple pies that my mom used to make at Thanksgiving. I just loved. And, um, she, she made great pies and, um, I've, I've always, you know, enjoyed other people's pies, but I've always said, um, yeah, that pie was good. That was okay, but not as good as my mama's. Okay. The pies that come out of your shop are better than my mom's. Now my mom, oh, that's, uh, is, that's really very flattering. She, she's not here to, to uh, hear us say this. So I can't feel too, too guilty. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, and, and you guys are doing some seasonal pies for Thanksgiving this year, right? Yeah. Yeah. This is so, yeah, you said we were new. Um, this is actually our fourth, uh, our fourth celebration, our fourth Thanksgiving. Uh, we, uh, opened the shop, tried to open the shop for Thanksgiving, Four years ago, uh, construction, of course, and permits and everything was held up as things do uh, here. Um, so we wound up, uh, while construction was going on out inside, setting up a tent outside and uh, selling pies, which was four years ago. Oh, coming I didn't up, uh, know that. Oh, yeah, God, yeah, I wish yeah. I had so known that. So, you know, we've got you know, lots of favorites that, that people have we've become known for. I think you're a big fan of our apple rosemary. Oh, my God, do I, I know, love that pie. <laughs> there, there, there are a number of you know things that we're bringing back. Our apple rosemary, our bourbon pecan, the butternut squash. Bourbon pecan. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So but this year, so there's also a tarte de la bouille. It's a Cajun custard, custard pie, and we're also adding another custard pie. It's a chocolate buttermilk. So all of our pies are made from scratch, nothing out of a bucket. Uh, they're all uh, uh, butter crusts, and uh, as you can attest to, uh, pretty darn good. So it's the crust, you know. Uh, that's what makes or, or breaks a pie, and the pie can have nice fruit inside and have a nice seasoning. But if you don't have a nice crispy crust, forget about it. If it's <laughs> yeah, a soggy right. crust on the bottom or on the top, it's or, or crumbly as opposed to crispy, no. And and your crispy crusts are fantastic, and I love it with your little sprinkle of sugar on top and butter, and it's just out of this world. So um, I can't I can't speak highly enough about the pies that uh, by Water Bakery puts out. Now, what are some of the other specialties that you have? Because I don't want to neglect that too. Uh, and then we'll get back to the pie. Um, well, I guess, you know we were um, we we're, we're doing so many things. We were kind of gearing up towards the big Twelfth uh, Night King's Day celebration. So once that mm. happened, January sixth, we we threw a very large block party last year that we can only uh, have to keep it as big as we went last year. So we're now in the works of trying to book bands and have that happening and do another big block party. So this time it's on a Monday. It would be sacrilege to do it before the Twelfth Night itself. So we're uh, we're purists and we're keeping it real and. Going to do a daytime block party on a Monday and hoping that uh, oh New Orleans goodness. follows us and then mm-hmm. you know, maybe we take a day off of work to come catch the stellar musicians that we have planned to uh, come and play our block party. So you know, aside from that, you know, we also do uh, breakfast and lunch, as you said, uh, but bagels. You know, we uh, 
we've uh, really quite found quite the niche on having a really great bagel. I'm, I'm going out there saying the best in the city. In that, you know, it's a three-day process. You know, we start on uh, Monday. Uh, Tuesdays are rolling up. Wednesdays we're boiling and baking them. And um, if you've not had a baker, that bagel at Bywater Bakery, we're um, really quite proud of it. And something that um, we were, you know, if you're not there by noon, I'm sorry, we're usually sold out by then. But there's only so much we can produce, and it's uh, it's become that kind of a that kind of an item. So we're very proud of that as well. Well, as a as a former New Yorker, um, I have never had a bagel in this city that is as close to what I grew up with as you do, and then some, because, of course, when you have your all, your everything bagels and your bagels with this kind of treatment and that kind of treatment um, is um, a, a, just a, a delight uh, to to get those, too. So I've, I've made it down a few Wednesdays also to pick there up some right. bagels. But um, in addition, you still have the, the uh, Chantilly cakes, which is, of course, Shia's... Well, that's really uh, what put us, put us on the map. Yeah, that was the recipe. My, my wife, Chaya, came up with for Whole Foods uh, a number of years ago. And, though uh, you know, you can't copyright recipes. It became, you know, she invented it for Whole Foods, and then uh, she moved to uh, uh, Rouse's, where it then became the Gentilly cake. And uh, oh, so they okay. have their own little spin on it. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah. at Bywater Bakery, we serve the original recipe uh, back to its original name. It's a Chantilly cake. And, again, the originated, originator is at Bywater Bakery at uh, Dauphine and Independence in the Bywater. That's our that's our, our calling card. And, and you, you know, people fully respond to it. And you do a lot of uh, custom things, I know, because uh, I often walk in with a bag of fruit, and uh, you'll make me a pie from it. Sometimes uh, I get the fruit in there on time, and sometimes it's a little not ripe enough. But you, I mean, too ripe, you, know, you still make it work. But um, so so somebody can come in and get a birthday cake uh, per uh, order. Um, well, order just about anything. So this is just just this past weekend we had a. Uh, sorority, I'm assuming from somewhere uptown, and I'm not saying they were too late, but too late. Uh, they ordered this uh, a, a, a unicorn cake, a severed head unicorn cake. <laughs> so it was really grotesque. It was really quite an animated cake. Um, uh, people loved it and were grotesque by it. We're grossed out by it, but it's, uh, yeah, you can do personally anything. So <laughs> we were uh, capable of uh, all your cake decorating needs and also weddings. I was amazed how many wedding cake orders we had in, in uh, October, November. Oh, I thought, I'm I'm not amazed at all since I have to live through wedding music coming at me from two sides of my house on Esplanade. And when, no, I, I, when I complained to the council once, they said, oh, lady, you just live in Wedding Central. Well, that's not <laughs> what I moved into. You know? <laughs> right, right. But, um, yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's a heavy wedding season here. Yeah, I'm really surprised that November would do. We've just been swapping weddings. And, and again, now it's uh, holiday season. We're in pie mode, and it'll soon be King Cake Land uh, coming up real soon. I um, um, am crazy about your stuff, and 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 the shop itself is such a neat kind of. It has a real rustic flavor to it, um, so you know it's not uh, too modernist. Uh, although I, there's another uh, shop in uh, in the city that I like that is more modernist, but I love your place, and um, it's it's you have a lot of table seating, so it's you know it's pretty easy as a rule, even when it's crowded, to find a place to sit, including outside when the weather's nice. So it's a, it's right, a right. cool thing. But I'm really uh, looking forward to uh, this Saturday because I know you're going to be making um, all four of those kind of pies for us, right? 
That's right. That's right. We'll have you all set up for your event going on Saturday. What time do you start with it, Jean? We're going to start at 11. And I, I told Sean this morning that we're going to come by and pick up pies, um, like maybe about 9, 9.30 mm-hmm. if we're mm-hmm. on time. Well, you know, we're there at 7 a.m. every day. And right. We'll certainly have that together for you uh, when we see you. And then we'll be serving um, uh, the pies. And I, I'm, I'm warning people that they have to get there early because we're, we're going to run out of the cakes, uh, the pies, too, because we did last year. I think we had um, a total of maybe two or three pies left, not by you, mm-hmm. not one of your mm-hmm. pies, but somebody else's. Because yours is, uh-huh. in addition to yours being so delicious, they're also pretty. So um, they, they fly out of there. So we're telling people, uh, don't don't wait until late afternoon. You know, come on in and, and get the pies, see the art, enjoy the We'll have little, um, we'd like to get our muffaladas from Ben's Pizza in the parish, mm-hmm. and it's uh, nice. the great little muffaladas um, for a, a little snacking while um, to give you the fuel so that you can have the energy to buy lots of pies. <laughs> there you go. Which, well, we'll do um, it on, Gene. Make sure you tell them that they can collect pies if I want a bakery until Wednesday, and I'll most likely be there Thursday, uh, Thanksgiving Day, for a late order pickup. So, uh, really? Yeah, we'll, oh, we'll wow. We'll covered, yeah. Oh, that's great. I mean, you can't lose on that. you got to be out there. So I'll that's tell you what, what I, I do. You know, um, you know that sometimes I might buy two or three pies from you, and uh, I'm not keeping them all out at the same time. I, I usually freeze two, uh, and idea. I'm eating off one. And then when I defrost um, a pie, pop it in the oven, you would never know that it was ever frozen. So well, I'm right. assuming that if people come and buy their pies on Saturday, that's all they have to do to save them for Thanksgiving is to just Let's, put them in the uh, in the freezer for a couple of days, and then they'll be ready and in great shape. But I know it's going to be um, a great day. It's it's the little bit of – we don't raise that much money from this. It's kind of like a church sale, really, but uh, we, we raise enough to kind of pay for the installation of the artwork that we're showing. So um, it's, it's definitely – important help for the Creative Alliance of New Orleans that's putting the event on. And we well, Cano is a great organization. I, mean, I you know, my, when I you know, worked with you at the Colton School so many years ago, I just was uh, happy to be involved and uh, I'm really proud of what you do. Yes, but that's that's, that's uh, the other side of Alton because he's also a couturier, <laughs> a New Orleans-style couturier and sells... That's a um, whole other story. Are you still doing that, Alton? Are you still making I, you know, some shirts? When time allows, you know, I mean, I, I, yeah. it's like, uh, you know, with Al Pacino, every time I try to get out, they keep pulling me back in, and, you know, holidays coming, people wanting, uh, you know, dresses and special outfits, and, you know, it's hard to do with so many things, but, um, you know, I make the time. I, I, I still have it in me. That's what I've done my whole career until I met Miss Wright and decided to open this bakery, but you got to make time for what it is you do and do enjoy. And that so, yeah, was, yeah, um, so I don't, you probably uh, didn't have a chance to hear Christina Larson, who was on just before you, and she was talking about, you know, how she balances running a gallery and making art, which I think is really hard to do. And uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm in a lot of admiration of, of folks like you who can balance those two parts of your life. So congratulations to you for doing that. I will see you Saturday. I hope. Thanks, Gene. Thanks so much. And Thanks for um, thank you so much for the pies that we will have and uh, people can get. And um, uh, if just in case we uh, miss in the night somehow, I don't see you. Um, you have a great Thanksgiving. Thanks, Gene. Same to you. Take care. All, All right. right. Take care. Okay. That's uh, it for us tonight. This has been Cross Conversations. This is Gene Nathan and. 
Um, we'll be back on Tuesday, and on Tuesday we're going to uh, we're going to talk about some special recipes for Thanksgiving because um, it's one thing to have all the traditional stuff, but it's also always a lot of fun to kind of figure out some wrinkles and do things just a little differently. So that's what we're going to do. All right, signing off, Gene Nathan, Crosstown Conversations on WBOK. Okay.